Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I can't believe I forgot to mention this, but Team Canada is in action right now, playing the Republic of Ireland at the World Cup of Soccer, and they have just tied it up. It is 1-1 at the half. Obviously, keeping an eye on that score, go Team Canada, right? There's still lots of game to play there, but Canada has scored, and it is 1-1. This is their second game, of course. So I'll let you know how that goes for sure. And uh, we, of course, rooting for them all the way. Right now, though, you know, we like to talk about all sorts of unusual and interesting things, especially at this time of the morning, usually right about now at 6.07. But this next one might take the cake. In fact, our contributor, Scott Chance, even said he can't believe that we're going to be talking about mermaids this morning. Yes, we are. Why, you ask? Because there are people who study and write about these things. Things like, well, where did mermaid legends come from? And realistically, what might those sightings actually have been? That is what we're going to ask Monica Cull about this morning. Monica is the assistant digital editor for Discover Magazine and, yes, has written about this. Good morning, Monica. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Listen, when did the legends of of mermaids get started? So there's a couple different um, variations on when they started, but some of the first legends that researchers think uh, started were about 3,000 years ago. There was um, a certain goddess in Syria who dove into a lake and turned into a fish, and she sort of is like the catalyst of the beginning of mermaid legends, but then they've obviously expanded all across the globe. Right. So are you saying like all cultures have some kind of story about potentially mermaids? Pretty much all cultures, especially if um, that culture lives near the ocean or a massive body of water. So you can find mermaid legends in Europe, in Africa, South America, Australia, and in Asian countries as well. And so what might some of those have actually been? So a lot of what um, researchers now think mermaid legends may have stemmed from are sightings of animals such as seals, um, especially like in Celtic regions, like in Ireland and Scotland, seals are very prevalent there. And a lot of people think that, um, for example, a very uh, famous legend in those regions are the Selkies, which is a half human, half seal. So a seal that can essentially shed its skin and come on land and live as a human. Um, There are also reports, so such as um, Christopher Columbus actually, as he was sailing across the sea, noticed what he thought was mermaids, but it turned out to be manatees. Um, But no one had ever seen a manatee before, so they weren't sure. Uh, what it was. So they just rationally were like, well, that must be what a mermaid is. Well, that sounds a lot um, better, right? But all the manatees are pretty cute. Yeah. That sounds a lot better. I, I it, think they're adorable. Yeah. They are adorable. Um, there's, 
There's another, so the manatee's cousin, it's called the dugong. It looks pretty much the same as the manatee, except it has like a whale tail and more of a sharp snout. So that's another creature that people have thought um, were mermaids based on its tail. So is um, there a similarity so, between these, like the different legends and different places? Do they describe something similar? Um, a lot of mermaid legends do describe similar things, uh, mostly just the appearance of them, but also just like um, they're, they can hear like these beautiful songs from the ocean and mermaid tropes. Typically, like if you look at like the Little Mermaid, She's a beautiful singer. She gives her voice to Ursula so that she can, you know, live on land. Um, there's the association in, like, the Greek Odyssey where mermaids or sirens sing to lure men to their death, that sort of thing. Um, so it's interesting that even though they're all in these vastly different regions, they all have very similar tropes to them. Now, was there any exaggeration involved here as well, Monica? Because I would imagine that sailors back in the day would have wanted to make their lives seem, you know, when they go home, tell these fantastical stories. Oh, I would totally believe that there is some sort of exaggeration. Um, Just listen to anyone who goes out on a fishing boat tell you, like, the size of the fish they caught or the storm they went through, things like that. Um, But from what I've... Yeah. From what I've read, there isn't any, like, documented exaggeration. I would imagine. Okay. So (laughs) is this something that people still study and still look at? Like, what fascinates you about mermaids? Um, Well, I, going back to, like, the Selkie legend, I grew up um, reading about Selkies and watching movies about Selkies, and I've always just really enjoyed that legend. Um, But I also just like to stay curious and keep my mind open, like, There is obviously no evidence that mermaids do exist, but I'm not going to be the one to tell you that there isn't some sort of mythical creature in the ocean. Uh, We know so much more about, like, outer space than we do about the ocean, so I'm not going to say that there 100% isn't anything down there that could fit the description of a mermaid. But it really perseveres, doesn't it? Because, like, you would think in this day Mm -hmm. and age that that's something that people would let go of, but we don't. Right. And I mean, it's even like, um, you know, so it's so much in our culture, like down to like the Starbucks logo is a mermaid, right? Yeah, that's it's true. It's just this, this idea of, you know, being able to live in both worlds, being able to live underwater and on land and just, you know, have this sense of freedom that comes with it. We like the magical and we like the mysterious. We like, I think we like the idea of thinking there's still things down there that we don't know about. Yeah, exactly. I think so. Mm, So true. Monica, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's say good morning to Scott Chance this morning. Scott, I just want to rant about something first before we get started. Okay. Yeah. This BC Ferry story from yesterday just wants me, makes me want to pull all my hair out. I heard you talking about this with John and you sounded a little upset. I'm upset because it seems to me that they just don't seem, they don't learn their lesson. Yeah. If they knew that the wrong information was on the website and that it was telling people there was like an eight, nine sailing weight, and they knew that wasn't true, and they knew it was being reported widely in the media, 
Why didn't they say something? Why didn't they phone AM 730? Why didn't they, you know, phone global, phone us, just put or put it out there on social media and just say, hey, we need people to know that's not actually what's happening. I, I don't understand that. That seems like a very basic thing. Yeah. And my my only answer to that is, is I, I don't know. It's, it does seem like... It seems crazy, right? For sure. Like, this is exactly and, what they should be doing. It feels like there are much bigger problems there than, this is than, what we, I'm thinking. than we think. I'm yeah. super sympathetic. I, there are tons of people out there who will tell me that I'm too soft on people already. Like, and I am pretty... I'm so... Like, I try to be so understanding, right? Sure, I try to yeah. go, oh, geez, I understand. That was hard. Yep. And I understand things happen. I am. I am that person, except when I can't be. And I just feel like this is one of those cases where there's no excuse. There's none. Yeah. It feels like the the right thing to do. Feels pretty straightforward. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. Come on, guys. Doesn't feel like it's a rocket scientist thing to figure out. No, it doesn't. Okay. That's my rant. People can definitely let me know how they feel. Send me at cknw.com. Now, I know you want to rant about this, so go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of rocket scientists or people who aren't exactly rocket scientists, I want to talk about uh, Elon Musk and his his rebranding of Twitter to X because a lot of people are still discussing this. This happened in the recently, just in the last week. Twitter is no longer called Twitter. It's called X, except that you still go there by going to twitter.com. But once you're on the page, there's no, it's no longer mention of Twitter or of tweets or the blue bird logo. He's rebranded all of that to this thing called X. And people have asked why, because you bought this thing for the brand, you know, you spent $44 billion on this thing. So what's the deal with rebranding it and changing it to something that nobody has ever heard of and nobody is aware of? And there are these theories, these conspiracy theories that have sort of come up over time. But essentially, the, ma- the main idea, the main thought is that Elon Musk wants to build what is essentially the internet of Elon. He wants X to be similar to something they have in China, which is called WeChat. It's basically an all-in platform. It's like you log in and it takes care of everything for you. Your travel, your social media, your email, your communications, your booking of an Uber, your banking, all of that type of stuff. And this seems like the most likely thing. He's kind of been talking about this for a while. Here he is uh, from a recent interview talking about how X is going to replace the banking system. Essentially, if, if, if done right, X would be would, would serve people's financial needs to such a degree that over time it would become, I don't know, maybe half of the global financial system. So it, it would be by far the biggest sort of financial institution. If, like I said, not, not really in the way that people are used to thinking about uh, banks. Now, if you don't understand how Twitter replaces a banking system, that's okay because I don't either. <laughs> like okay. it just seems crazy, right? It, it is crazy. And I was reading about this yesterday and he has this obsession with this and it goes back 22, 23 years. He tried to do this when he was at the company that became PayPal. Yes. And his determination to do so when everyone else in the company looked at it and said, no, 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 we need this to become PayPal it resulted in him being turfed. Yeah. They had a coup kicked him out. Peter Thiel became the CEO and they moved and they became PayPal. So this seems like an old idea that he is just obsessed with. Yeah. And one of the other theories with, uh, with why he did it, it's, it's this idea that X is just basically pseudo wear. It's like a new brand instead of Twitter. It's like, Hey, I'm going to call this thing X and people are going to get excited about it because it's new and it's different and I'm putting my mark on it. And then the third theory is that he's basically doing this to like 
rebuild himself. He's had a few missteps kind of in the last Big couple ones. of years. Yeah, yeah. And he's doing this to kind of rebuild his reputation and it will be like his thing and everything under X will be good and, but you know, wholesome and all of money. that. We're talking about people's money here. And there's nothing about this that would inspire confidence in me in somebody, someone like me saying, I'm going to give him my money and put my money in this website. That's not going to happen. But would you use the website no. if it was free? No. I really? Wouldn't. No. See, I like the way that you were about BC Ferries. I kind of am with Elon. At first, no. I thought... I, like, I'm disappointed because, you know, five years ago, we were all on the Elon bandwagon that maybe he's going to be Iron Man and like, you know, potentially going to make a lot of wrong things right in the world. But now he's had all these terrible missteps like we talk about. But I'm hoping I'm I'm no. disappointed in him, but there's still a chance that he could turn it around. I when it comes to like trusting my money electronically, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's where I draw the line. Like I've, you've got to make sure that stuff is locked down. But Simi, he's going to make it 50% of the global financial system. He just pulled that number out of the air, you bet, Scott. You bet he did. And you, you know, bet he did. if people like you want to invest in him, I say good luck. But please, Scott, don't come crying when that money is all gone and disappears <laughs> I'll, into the I'll ether. invest a small, <laughs> small amount. We'll keep watching what he does with this X platform. Yes, but I will uh, walk with, I'll watch what you do with your money. <laughs> okay, you got it. <laughs> this is Mornings with Simi. I'm going to rage a little more about BC Ferries now, but this time Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun is going to help me. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. Ah, oh, BC Ferries. Wow. Come on, right? <laughs> hey, they're turning it around. <laughs> That's sarcasm, That's by the way, said, on Vaughn's man. Part. They fired the CEO, by God. John Horgan said, you ask anybody in one of the ferry lineups why we had to fire the CEO, they say, what took you so long? So... Cost a million and a half bucks. Uh, we got uh, an NDP appointee in as chair of the board, Joy McPhail. She did the firing. We got a her handpicked CEO, uh, Nicholas Jimenez, and he's going to turn stuff around. Man, oh man, like this ferry service is going to shape up. The minister told us that the Canada Day Troubles, uh, Rob Fleming said Canada Day Troubles were the last of it. We're going to have a different ferry service this summer. Yesterday. I mean, now they're a laughing stock, right? Yes, I would agree because you can't, there's nothing that I can find that is understandable about what happened yesterday because it's inexcusable <laughs> that nobody picked up a phone or put something yeah. on social media to explain what was happening. I mean, we know that the hardworking crew and the hardworking officers and the people in the terminals that are taking the heat from the public. We know they're at work. <laughs> we, we're, I think we can say they're probably doing their best and they wish to God they didn't have to deal with this. But is anybody in charge? Every news organization in the province that is live and on the air, TV and radio, yesterday morning, starting at like 5 in the morning, is reporting yes. a nine-sailing wait. And their source of that information is the BC Ferries website. Yeah. So finally, halfway into the day, the ferry service comes up for air, manages to find somebody who's actually authorized to speak to the news media, and they say, oh, uh, uh, <laughs> that's not true. It's only a one or two sailing wait. And the capstone of this, oh, their website, their website. You see, the problem is the website. Well, no, the problem is actually with the customers. It's our fault this happened. I'm sorry? 
That's what they said. So here's the deal. People make ferry reservations for good reason. It's the only way you can be sure of getting on the ship. The fee is 17 bucks, right? So you make 18 now. So you, if your time is worth anything, $18 is not a big deal, right? So you make the reservation just in case, and you don't show because it was just in case. The penalty for just canceling is $18. So, you know, you did it, right? But you can reschedule for 5 bucks. <clears throat> and frankly, that's what I think people are doing. They're making reservations, loading up the reservations just in case. And then if they travel regularly, if they have to go back and forth to right. family or business, right? And I get it. This happens a lot on the Sunshine Coast where people live on the Sunshine Coast and work in Vancouver. So they, they cancel or they reschedule and they pay, you know, if they cancel 18 bucks, reschedule 5 bucks. So that's what's happening. And the reason it's happening is because uh, people, you know, follow the news, <laughs> apparently more closely than they do at BC Ferries, since everybody knows if you want to be sure of getting on the ferry, you need a reservation. So that's blame the customers. My favorite part of yesterday, however, is they said... Don't pay any attention to our website. Go to Twitter. <laughs> or X, as we now call yeah, but it. They, they didn't even so, update so, that so, properly, though. They didn't. <laughs> don't trust BC Ferries. Trust Elon Musk, right? Um, I mean, you know, and you were uh, laughing a little earlier today about the name change. But, you know, apparently, uh, according to BC Ferries, his uh, service, whatever the hell we're calling it now, X or Twitter or whatever, um, is more reliable than BC Ferries. So that's the situation we were left with yesterday. And I guess in the middle of all this, the one person at Ferries that I do feel a bit sorry for, apart from the frontline people that are taking the heat from the public, is Karen Johnston. Because she's sent out to talk to the media on this. She's not even their senior media person at Ferries. That's Deb Marshall, right? But she's sent out to talk to us. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. but still way late. Right. Like, yeah, it, it, but, she also, she didn't need necessarily to talk if they had just been providing oh, more information or or gotten out there earlier, because now yeah. it just looks like they're scrambling because they waited they so are long. Scrambling. And she says we're doing our best. And she can't really like I gather one of our colleagues at one point asked her, like, where's the CEO, which is a good question. Right. I mean, remember what happened with the airport, right? And there was a big fiasco at the airport. Well, yeah. And nobody came forward and talked. But eventually, the CEO came back from her holiday to Maravruman, and then she did a whole bunch of media hits. She stood there and took it. That's your job, right? So we look at BC Ferries, and why is a relative mid-level administrator in communications representative doing the talking? First of all, where's Joy McPhail? She's the former cabinet minister who was sent in to do the hit job on the CEO. She's a new Democrat and loyal. She should be out there doing the talking on this. Where's Nicholas Jimenez, her hand-picked CEO? He's the guy who's going to turn it around. And third of all, where is Rob Fleming, the transportation minister? He tries to maintain the pretext that, oh, BC Ferries is independent and they can handle themselves. There's no question the New Democrats have taken political control of BC Ferries. They should be out handling this, not leaving some poor 
poor communications person to deal with it. It's the minister, first of all, should be there. He's the one who said, oh, it's unacceptable. Okay, well, start standing up there and talking about it. Go to the terminals and talk to the people there and reassure them. This is this hiding from the reckoning for this and pretending we're turning it around, you know, the excuses have run out. And I really think there needs to be political accountability here from the the three people who can most account for it, starting with the minister, then the NDP hand-picked board chair, and then her hand-picked CEO. That's who should be talking and explaining things, not some communications director. You are bang on. See, I was going to rant. Why do I need to rant when I can let Vaughn do it for sure? Okay, we have more with uh, Vaughn Palmer. In fact, we are waiting the news of this big federal cabinet shuffle that is happening this morning shortly, as a matter of fact. And we want to know what the implications are for B.C. More on that now with Vaughn Palmer. So, so Vaughn, I, I had also pegged the departure of David Lametti as something is having pretty big impact here. Yeah, the federal justice minister, David Lametti, is out, according to the rumor mill out of Ottawa, which I think in this case is probably accurate. It matters uh, to the B.C. government because that's who the B.C. government has been dealing with on Premier David Eby's wish, push, desire, just short of demand for bail reform in Canada. You know, the B.C. government tried to deal with the problem of repeat violent offenders uh, with its own uh, directives to prosecutors. It didn't work very well. The judges wouldn't listen because essentially the criminal code says go easy even on repeat violent offenders and give them bail. So the EB and joined with other premiers, issued a call to Ottawa. Lametti, I don't think, ever had any enthusiasm for the idea. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, well, you know, he's not persuaded that there's any fundamental problem with the bail system in Canada, and he defended it. Uh, under pressure from the premiers and I guess from the prime minister's office, they introduced legislation in the spring and back in May that would have made it harder for repeat violent offenders to get bail. They never brought the bill into the House. They just adjourned Parliament without bringing it. And I don't think, as I said, Lametti had any enthusiasm. So the uh, answer uh, out of Ottawa is they'll, they'll bring the bill back in the fall. It's still there on the order paper for Parliament. So it comes back in the fall. And if we've got a new justice minister, the, well, he can't have less, less enthusiasm for the change than Lametti. So I think the B.C. government would be very happy that there's a change there and hoping for the best from a new justice minister, hoping we get bail reform before the end of the year. It's overdue. David Eby has described it as urgent, and I think he's right on that one. It is urgent, and it's urgent not just in British Columbia, but talk to the Premier of Ontario, the Premier of Manitoba, and elsewhere, they'll agree. Okay, so it's possible then that this could make it actually happen. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, give them the benefit of the doubt, assuming they don't call an early election, uh, that uh, there's, there's a chance now you'll get bail reform before the end of the year, although there's a major pushback, right, from the legal, judicial, academic establishment that cares, you know, that wants the current leniency to continue 
uh, insists it's not necessary. So it's still going to take some pushing to get that through Ottawa, but I think you got a better shot of it with a new justice minister. So that's one. Um, I, we should note, by the way, the retirement of Joyce Murray. Uh, ah, yes. Yeah, I mean, she's I mean, she's a cabinet minister, a fisheries minister, member for uh, Vancouver Quadra. She's an unusual figure in modern-day British Columbia politics. She's been a cabinet minister at the provincial level, in the Gordon Campbell Liberal government and a federal cabinet minister. She holds uh, what I think would qualify as the safest liberal seat in federal in British Columbia because the liberals even held it uh, when John Turner was leader and the liberals federally were almost wiped out. So uh, important departure, long-time service to British Columbians, maybe not a high-profile minister, but nevertheless, um, Putting up with the travel to Ottawa all these years, she deserves credit for that, if nothing else. And, uh, you know, she leaves with a clean record and a lot of respect. So, uh, well done. Thanks for your service and enjoy your retirement. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by that one. She's one of those people, kind of like Hetty Fry, who just keeps running and running, and you didn't see that change coming at all. So, I'll I'll wait for that. Also, just a quick question as well. With the change, though, at the Justice Ministry level, then, does this change other priorities? Like, do you think we'll hear more from uh, Premier David Eby now about this provincial police force? Yeah, I think you're going to be looking to we're apparently getting a new minister in charge of policing as well. Uh, so the Mendocino is out. So again, uh, British Columbia got along fine with him. I don't think they're happy to see him go, but understand why. But yes, I mean, we're getting a new federal minister in charge of the RCMP. I think they really need to get going at the federal level, first of all, on telling the provinces what Ottawa's thinking is about the future of the RCMP. There are indications the federal government wants the RCMP to get out of local policing. They've circled the year 2032, which is when the existing contracts expire. And at that point, if that's where Ottawa is headed, the provincial premiers are saying, if we have to replace the RCMP as a contract policer for local policing, uh, if we have to establish a provincial police force, we need to get going on that now. Premier Eby has said that, and I think, you know, you're going to be looking this fall. Let's start a serious uh, review and research here at BC as to what that would entail, but also get into serious negotiations with Ottawa about their plan if they're getting out of policing with the RCMP and turning the RCMP into a national force and not doing local contract policing anymore. We need to get going on that. Uh, 2032, you can't set up an entire local provincial police force without a lot of planning and a lot of effort. And that is not that far away. It's going to go really, really quickly. So, you know, turn the page on Surrey, and I hope we are. I hope that uh, first summit yesterday with Farnworth and Mayor Locke is the beginning. Uh, Jessica McDonald's going to go talk to the mayor. Uh, Yeah, I hope it's turned the page, but really seriously now, uh, serious engagement at the provincial level. Are we going to have a B.C. provincial police force, and what do we need to do to get there? All right, Vaughn, thank you. 
Bye-bye, Simi. All good questions. Von Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. So clearly there will be an impact on BC this morning with this federal cabinet shuffle. It is the reason why it's getting so much attention is we're in the middle of summer. It's pretty unusual to have what is a, a very sizable cabinet shuffle happen at this time of year. But with seven people saying that they are not going to run in the next election, it was pretty clear the time had come uh, for the prime minister to do something. So who's going to get promoted? What does that mean for BC's priorities? Well, that's what we're waiting to find out. So that announcement, so usually what happens is they start showing up uh, for the ceremony and that's when we get an idea of who's going to be doing what position, who's getting moved. Some people get promoted, some people get shuffled out. Uh, We will start to find that out in the next hour or so. And of course, we'll keep you updated on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, there are a few names in Canadian crime history that draw the same response as Paul Bernardo, and rightfully so. Recently, the news that Bernardo was being moved to a medium security prison sure generated outrage. And many of us want to know, how could that even be possible? Now, the opposition blames a 2019 law brought in by the Liberal government that kind of loosens solitary confinement rules or or changes the rules around which people are put in solitary confinement. But we wanted to dig into this a little more. So joining us now is Mary Campbell, a lawyer and former Director General of Corrections and Criminal Justice at the Department of Public Safety. Mary, thank you for being here this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Could you start by explaining to us what would go into a transfer like this? What is considered? Well, there are a number of factors considered, and uh, by and large, they look at uh, the person's behavior in whatever uh, classification or prison they're in. Um, They look at the person's risk uh, to escape, and they look at the potential, what kind of harm would they cause if they were to escape. Um, And anyone who's in sort of the category of Mr. Bernardo, unfortunately, it's a small group, but it's a terrible group. Um, There is enormous scrutiny of the person before any kind of transfer is considered. People need to know he did do 30 years in maximum security before this transfer was affected. 30 years in maximum uh, behind bars, behind a plexiglass sheet because the inmates were throwing things at him, uh, no mingling with other people. The big thing people also need to know is that in medium, the perimeter security is exactly the same. It's still a stone wall with razor wire. So in terms of any escape, um, it's, there's no difference in that. Um, I do want to talk about the section that people are kind of wound up about, though. Okay. Uh, before we do that, though, can I just ask you, though, you talked about the exterior being the same, but I think yeah. people want to know is, like, what does he get inside? Is it looser? Does he get more privileges? No, I wouldn't say more privileges. Uh, Privileges are far and few in uh, any penitentiary. Um, The big difference in terms of uh, max and medium is in medium, he has to be out of his cell during the day and be able to associate with the other inmates on the range. And that was the big obstacle to transferring him so far. He couldn't mix with the other inmates on the range. And eventually, over the course of 30 years, he demonstrated that he could do that safely with out, you know, any uh, disasters. Um, so out of the cell means he has to be either at a job 
or at a program. He's not just lounging around, you know, having coffee and cookies. Um, They're expected to be doing something, and if they're not, then he would be locked in his cell. But that's really the big difference. He'd be able to attend, for example, group therapy, which he would not have been able to do before. Uh, They have AA meetings, that sort of thing. He'd be able to go to that. But, you know, the food is the same. The routine is the same. It's still a penitentiary. Um, not much else changes between max and medium. Okay, well, let's talk about that wording now, though, because there's a lot of, you know, focus on this 2019 changing of the wording or the phrasing of this this principle. Can you explain that to us? Sure. Um, uh, I was around when the Corrections and Conditional Release Act was first created. So uh, that was in sort of 1992 is when it came into force. And the wording that you see today really has nothing to do with Justin Trudeau. That was Brian Mulroney's wording. Um, I was there. I was one of the writers. And uh, that was the standard that was applied in 92 and remained as the standard uh, until the Harper government. There's a set of purpose and principles for corrections, you know, and it's all in the law. And that least restrictive option consistent with public safety is the principle that was put in in 1992. Along comes Mr. Harper. Uh, They don't like that wording. They think it sounds like, well, you have to give them the least restrictive option. They never read the second half of the sentence, which is consistent with public safety. If, you know, the least restrictive option is maximum security, well, that's where you're going to stay. Um, So the Harper government changed the wording, and all that Mr. Trudeau did when he came along was put it back to the Brian Mulroney wording. It's nothing new. It's nothing special. It's exactly the way that the Mulroney government had drafted it in 92. And it's an international principle. It's not just some crazy idea from Ottawa. Um, This is a principle that applies in sentencing. You apply uh, the least restrictive option consistent with public safety in bail decisions, in uh, parole decisions. And it's a principle that's global, that's used by uh, most Western countries. So there's really nothing strange about it. And I think people get maybe a bit off track because they do just think, well, least restrictive option. So, you mean, you know, you have to kind of like let them free. Um, and that is not the case right. at all. Also, it's a bit of a perfect storm, though, isn't it, Mary? Because you're right, the words least restrictive and Paul Bernardo in the same sentence are probably yeah. what get people worked up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, look, uh, uh, it's perfectly understandable to be worked up about Mr. Bernardo. He is a heinous, horrible person who did uh, staggeringly awful things. Like, I understand completely people's sentiment. Um, The question for corrections, though, is what do they do? What's their mandate? And they've got 22,000 other people serving time. And so you can't start sort of, you know, making the rules change just because of one person. You apply the rules individually, but, you know, there's 22 other thousand people who are nowhere close to Mr. Bernardo's behavior. And the fact that he's been in Max for 30 years should tell people something. You know, the system is quite capable of keeping him locked up. Uh, And he can go back to Max at any time. That's the other thing. It's not a one-way ride. If uh, he were to screw up or there's trouble in medium, he'll be back in max before you know it. That's reassuring then to know. Mary, thank you very much for your time. 
You're very welcome. Appreciate you explaining that to us. That's Mary Campbell, a lawyer and former director general of Corrections and Criminal Justice at the Department of Public Safety, talking about the you know the rules, the process, the protocol that involved sending Paul Bernardo to medium security. Obviously, that the system itself there worked. It, what, really, the problem here was the communication about how this all happened. How many times have we seen that messed up, right? This is Mornings with Simi. We know the Canadian healthcare system has been facing huge challenges. We hear about, you know, staffing levels are a problem. We can't find enough doctors, can't find enough nurses, and things are getting expensive, especially when it comes to drugs. Now, there has been some work being done on this on the federal front. There's something called the Patented Medicine Prices Review Board. That's a federal agency. Now, technically, it's responsible for controlling drug prices for Canadians, but there are concerns that it's not doing the job it's supposed to. There's even been some parliamentary parliamentary hearings about this. So we wanted to talk about that work that is being done. Joining us is Dr. Sandra Sears, a clinical professor of endocrinology at UBC and staff physician at Vancouver General Hospital. Good morning, Dr. Sears. Good morning. Do you think we're doing a good enough job of, of protecting Canadians from high drug prices? Uh, no, Simi, I would disagree with that. I think uh, Canada actually has the third highest uh, drug pr- prices in the uh, world. Uh, and I think many Canadians feel that Canada does well controlling drug prices because they uh, only think about drug prices in the United States, which has the highest drug prices in the world. But actually, relative to her peers, countries like Australia, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, etc., uh, Canada has prices that are very much higher. Why is that, do you think? I think that there's uh, many factors that contribute uh, to this. Uh, the first is that there's really a fragmentation of Canadian healthcare because it's administered by the provinces and territories. So we essentially have 13 separate systems. While the provinces do try and negotiate price as a group through an organization called the Pan-Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance, um, that is uh, that organization is voluntary. So provinces can opt in or opt out of those price negotiations. So you can imagine if one of the larger provinces like Quebec, for example, were to opt out of price negotiations, the buying power of the Canadian public or the, of the Canadian provinces would really be reduced. I think more than that, though, it is this phenomenon of uh, what economists refer to as willingness to pay. Uh, There are not market forces when it comes to drugs. Uh, Basically, they're priced as high as the uh, purchasers are willing to pay. And because in Canada, um, uh, we have shown ourselves as being willing to pay very high values. And that is why we are uh, having the drug prices that are so high. So do we have the mechanism, though, to change that? Well, the PMPRB that you referred to, it's job uh, was actually to control drug prices or to monitor drug prices, but uh, lately there have been a number of uh, sort of seismic shifts in the Patent Medicine Review Board uh, that have left them uh, in a situation where they don't have the legislative uh, backup 
uh, to do what they need to do. So they, for example, proposed a series of reforms that were estimated to save Canadians more than $3 billion uh, in drug prices, and those reforms were never implemented uh, largely uh, because of pressure uh, from the industry. And so I think one needs to look seriously at the issue as to how an agency that is supposed to be independent of uh, both pressure from industry and also political pressure uh, got to the place where they were unable to implement the reforms that might have helped control prices. Do you think this would change, Dr. Sears, if we did have like a national pharmacare program with the government, do you think have more incentive then to act? Uh, I believe that the National Pharmacare Program uh, is one potential strategy, but I think that it does not change the fundamental uh, position of willingness to pay. So uh, as long as we demonstrate that we are willing to pay these very high prices, uh, companies would be foolish not to charge them. Uh, And I think what we need to do is have a real critical look at why are these drug prices so high? So why uh, is Canada paying, for example, uh, a much higher price for a drug for spinal muscular atrophy than Japan? Right. Why is Canada paying more? We should be paying the same amount. Uh, And so I think this uh, the question of drug prices is more difficult than just having a single buyer. Uh, I think there are other countries uh, that do better, uh, that do have a single payer system. So, for example, the United Kingdom and Australia. But I don't think that that would be the only solution. You you said, you know, they, they pay this because we're willing. Are we willing or are we just trapped? I think that um, we are willing. Uh, we are willing because we are unwilling to uh, to call the to call the bluff, as it were. Right? As I say, uh, you know, it it is not reasonable to think that Canada should pay more for a, uh, any given drug than Australia, uh, also a small market, or than the United Kingdom, a, a bigger market with a single payer system. We should be paying uh, similar uh, markets, but because of our proximity to the United States, uh, there is a a, a desire, I think, to defend very high drug prices in North America because we are uh, so close to the United States. uh, And uh, so if the United States were looking to Canada as an example of uh, where they want their prices to go, they don't want prices in Canada to go that low. Right. So we're just grateful, I guess, for what we have, even though it could be better. Dr. Sears, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. That's Dr. Sandra Sirs, clinical professor of endocrinology at UBC, staff physician at Vancouver General Hospital, talking about what she believes to be the drug prices in Canada that are just too high and says we have to be willing to, you know, fight that, fight that essentially, fight back against that. Now, would you be willing to do that and say, you know, to the next election, this is something that is important to me? Let me know, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you remember when the idea of air travel was so luxurious, when the thought of getting on a plane was enjoyable, you were looking forward to it? Yeah, those days are gone. 
like really gone. Our Scott Chance is with us this morning to talk about this. Scott, do you remember that? Do you remember when you used to get excited to get on a flight? Absolutely. It used to be this thing that people get dr- got dressed up for. You know, it's yes. like, oh, you're going on an airplane. And now That's it's fancy. funny. Yeah, it's like a thing. It's like a privilege to do it. And there was this reverence for the fact that, you know, we built this industry and it takes engineers and scientists and all, all this wonderful stuff. And now you see people getting on airplanes in their sweatpants. I feel like cattle. I feel feel like I'm being herded when I'm on an airplane now. There's nothing fun about it. It's just, I feel like it's stressful because then it's like, are we going to make it? Am I going to make my connection if I have a connection? Am I going to be on time? And what about all this other stuff that's based on me being on time? Like all of it is stressful. You kind of have to count yourself lucky to be able to be uncomfortable for the duration of your flight because you, your flight actually took off and is going. So you're going to get where you intended to go. And it's like, okay, well, at least I don't have to worry about my flight being canceled. I'll deal with the fact that I'm going to be squished into a ball for the next five hours. Right. And you know, all of this, I, I shouldn't say all of it, but a lot of this, I feel like started after 9-11 when the rules started to change and it felt like the airline industry was going to collapse. And so as a way of, of keeping it afloat, they started user fees. Yeah. But then they found out people will pay the user fees and they will still fly. And so now it's just like user fee after user fee. And then it felt like they had maxed out on that, but they're going even further. Oh my gosh, Simi, they are adding user fees everywhere. At first it was bags, right? You had to pay to check a bag. So everybody started carrying on. Now they're charging for carry-ons, for upgraded seating. Everything. Even the, it used to be that they, you, you didn't have to pay for a seat if you waited until the 24 hours before right. that. You only had to pay for a seat if you did, if you picked it before, you know, 24 hours before. So that's what I always did. So I was like, oh, I'll just get a seat. I'll get us all together. But now you still have to pay for a seat and it's terrible and you're paying even more. It's like, it's just this gradual descent into like, how, how bad can it get? We'll take out all the seats and we'll just like, let you sit in there like cargo. Well, that's what the, remember the CEO of Ryanair got into trouble because that's essentially what he wanted. That's Standing what he, room. yeah, he foresaw that as this is what he wants. That is the kind of Ryanair model, right? Where yeah. essentially what the price gets you is on board. Yes. And then everything after that is a charge. Well, Simi, it's the Ryanair model, but it's really starting to show up here too. This is what drives me crazy. So everything you're going to be charged for, and the one that, I don't know, do you draw the line at now being charged for a carry-on? Uh, Are you still going to do it? I think, I I mean, you got to have some baggage, you know, like you got to bring stuff. What are you going to not going to bring your carry-on? If they're going to charge you, whether it's a carry-on or put it in the hold, which one are you going to go oh, for? Oh, I'm going carry on because Still. I don't I don't trust them to not lose it. That's a good point. That's a good good point. I do wonder about that. Like are people willing to pay for a carry on which more airlines by the way are moving towards and you can let us know simi at cknw.com. Now you're talking about this today Scott because there's there's other changes coming like how could they possibly oh, squeeze more from us? Well, this is it like we're talking about. It's this very gradual descent into how bad can it get? Uh, John Graddock is an aviation expert from McGill University and uh, yeah, I spoke with him about Yes, how how far down this rabbit hole we can go. And he gives me one example. It's just a rumor at this point. But, you know, you 
imagine paying to have to go to the bathroom on an airplane. Simi. You stop right now. You stop right now. I, Scott, now there's more coming is what you're telling us. Yeah, it definitely feels like that. Just when you feel like, oh, we've reached the bottom. We've we've reached as far as we can go with airlines trying to just get everything they possibly can from us. There's always more room. Uh, I spoke with John Graddock. He's a uh, aviation expert at McGill University. He's got over 40 years experience in the aviation industry managing things like this. And so he, I think he has a pretty good idea of, of what's happening here and what's to come. But to start off, I just basically asked him straight up his opinion. Do you think that the airline industry is getting worse? I think there are certain pockets of aviation that, you know, are, are, are of concern. I think that uh, the industry, uh, for the most part, learned its lesson from uh, the summer of 2022 and uh, winter of 2022-23. I think that over the holidays, the Christmas holidays, uh, Vancouver went through a few instances of issues that they had to deal with. And I think that, uh, you know, they've learned their lesson to basically staff up. I think the big issue we had last year was shortage of staff uh, and, and some very key roles, whether it was CATSA or TBSA or whether it's the airline or whether it's the airport, uh, baggage handling, all of those functions were really short-staffed. And the airlines industry, the, the, the airports, all did a great job of bringing staff up. Now, the issue is have they, they've got the bodies, they threw the bodies at it, have they got the experience to need, needed to basically make this thing uh, hum? And that's what we're saying, probably not. There's still some work to be done in getting people the experience they need to make sure that the, the operation is moving smoothly. So it's a learning curve. We're moving up there, but still on certain pockets of the country, on uncertain airlines, uh, you're going to have some stress this summer if you're flying Okay, good to know. And one of the things that I think is stressing uh, some people out, and I'll, like, I'll count myself in amongst this, is this term that we hear sort of associated with everything now, variable pricing. It just seems like they're throwing this at everything now. We're not just going to charge you for your ticket. We're going to charge you for uh, your bag, your carry-on, how much leg room you get, where you sit on the plane, all of these different things. And they're applying all of these different pricing models too. Is everyone as confused as I am? Yes. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's gotten to the point right now where uh, you know it's getting a little crazy. I even heard of carriers starting to charge you to use the washroom You're on kidding. an airplane. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I think that's a rumor, but uh, you know, when it, whether it's a, whether it's smoke, there's flame. So you never know. Variable pricing. Some people call it. Some people call it dynamic pricing. Some people call it, you know, um, additional <laughs> costs. Uh, but what they do, the, the carriers typically compete. On airfares, uh, so if you look at you know the, the advertising and the promotions, the social media, you know people, you know the carriers basically say, well, "I've got the lowest price there is in Canada. Here you go, you can go from Vancouver to Toronto for 99 bucks one way." Um, but then you look at the fine print and you look at what's being offered for 99 dollars, and you're saying to yourself, "Well, I might need a bag uh, that I have to check in, or I might need a larger carry-on bag, or I might want my seat to be selected before I get on the airplane." or I want a window seat rather than an aisle seat. So all of these things that you want to get that you know are over and above the actual ticket for that flight is going to cost you. And guess what? Those are very expensive. You want to check a bag? 85 bucks. And your and your but your your air airfare is only $99. They make they don't make they use the airfares as a loss leader. Uh, and guess what? By the time you finish your trip at 99 bucks on airfare only, by the time you add all of those goodies up 
you're over 300, 400 bucks. I remember the first time that I had to pay to check a bag, it was $29. And to hear that now it's 89, now, I feel like everyone wants to carry on. I flew last month and I was in the, sorry, at the gate waiting. And, you know, they were making this announcement, which I'm sure you've and many people have heard before that it's, oh, if anyone is willing to check a bag, we're not going to have enough room in the overhead bins. So we're looking for volunteers to check bags because everybody's trying to carry on. That's the issue that we're having is that, you know, they've made the rules so tight in terms of the, the size of the bag that you can carry on for free. I'm sure people have caught on to this, so I'm not like spoiling anything, but it's saying I would carry, I would carry my bag on. I'm, I say I'm going to carry it on, and then when I get to the gate, they say, oh, we'll check this bag for you, and we'll check it for free, so I've kind of saved the $85. Are people doing that? Is that like... They're trying. They're trying. They're yeah. trying. I think that you know, you know, the, the airlines know what you're doing. Of so, course. Uh, that, that, that probably will be something, well, you, don't, you have no choice, basically, when you get to the gate, you basically have to check your bag, and guess what? They charge it to your credit card. Yeah, exactly. Like the way you said it, it's that the airlines are constantly trying to outsmart the consumer here. Yeah, I think they are. I think, you know, the, the consumer is getting wise. I think, you know, this, this strategy has been tried many times in the past uh, in Europe, primarily if you look at our friends over at Ryanair or EasyJet or, or Jet2. Um, that's, you know, their revenues and their profitability comes from these ancillary services. It doesn't come from flying people on a plane from A to B. It's really how much money they make based on bags, on meals that they serve, water that they serve, uh, you know, seats that people select, boarding passes that you get issued, tickets that you want printed. All of those things, you know, are additional costs to you as a traveler. And so you have to be very aware that whatever it is that you want over and above the airfare, they're gonna charge you for it. But, but read the, read the, always read the fine print. You always got it. We'll keep print. our eyes on it. Uh, John Graddick, he's an aviation expert from McGill University. Thank you so much for your time this morning, and uh, we'll see you up uh, there, hey? Uh, all right, Scott. Take care. Take travels. So basically everything, Simi, I am outraged. Everything. Washroom? I mean, Those like he said, better be perfect. And now flight attendants are going to have to be cleaning. Them. Hey, where there's smoke, there's fire. It's kind of how, how he said it. But they're basically anything that they can charge you for. They're going to. I'll tell you right now, Scott, I would prefer to pay a little more and have all of these things included and not have to worry about it. And I wonder if it's only a matter of time before an airline it markets itself as that. You know what? And That's an interesting fly. point. I would fly that airline. The pendulum swings back. Yes. Take note, airlines. I will book a flight on you if this is what you do. <laughs> Thank you for that, Scott. You got it. It's a great question, though. Like, which one would you prefer? Would you prefer an airfare that's a little bit more money but includes all of this? Or are you willing to go a la carte and pick and choose what you want to pay for for the idea of a cheaper airfare? Weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. We've got the major news to eight just ahead here at Mornings with Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Big news out of Ottawa this morning. It's a major cabinet shuffle. And I know you think, well, what's huge about that? Actually, quite a bit. Uh, unusual for it to happen this time of year, right? Middle of summer. And you're talking about the departure of quite a few high-profile people in the last couple of days telling the Prime Minister in Canada that they don't intend to run for election in the next election. And so they get moved to the back bench. And a couple of those we're talking here in BC, including Fisheries Minister Joyce Murray. So there had to be a rearrangement 
ranging. And it kind of lets you know what the priorities of the government are, especially as we do head towards an election in the next year or two. So what are some of the big changes? Well, Anita Anand has moved to be president of the Treasury Board, meaning she needed to be replaced at Minister of Defense. That is now going to be Bill Blair. Dominic LeBlanc taking over as Minister of Public Safety. That means that he will now be the point person when it comes to allegations of China's interference in past federal elections, uh, things like the RCMP. It will now be Dominic LeBlanc. Uh, Marco Mendocino uh, has been dropped from cabinet. There were quite a few controversies there. Uh, we have a new Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada. It is Arif Farani. Uh, we also have a new Minister of Citizen Services from BC. It is MP Terry Beach. So clearly quite a few changes here. Six ministers were actually dropped from cabinet, including David Lametti, the former justice minister, Omar Al-Gabra, former transportation minister who said that he's not running in the next election, and the former president of the Treasury Board, Mona Forte, also dropped. Uh, people who are staying the same, Christopher Freeland, finance minister, Melanie Jolie, foreign affairs minister, Stephen Guibault, uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne, Patty Haydu. So quite a few people staying the same but also people being dropped. So what does all of this mean, especially to you? Let's find out. Joining us now to talk about that is Jenny Armstrong, instructor of the Political Management Graduate Program at Carleton University and a former director of communications for Minister Morneau and a former lead speechwriter for Prime Minister Trudeau. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. So what does it mean when we see a cabinet shuffle of this size at this time of year, do you think? Well, I'm, I'm not too surprised by the time of year. There's going to be a, a cabinet retreat coming up in a couple of weeks, and or I think next weekend, actually. Um, and so this is an opportunity to kind of bring the new people in, get together, have some serious conversations, sort of set the agenda for the fall, and also give people, a, you know, sort of a couple weeks to do a ton of reading <laughs> to get briefed up by their public servants so they're ready to go when the House uh, comes back to sit in September. What, what do cabinet shuffles say about a government's intentions or priorities? Well, I, I think it's an opportunity, you know, both to to say goodbye to folks like uh, Joyce Murray, who said that they, they don't intend to run again, and also to welcome a whole bunch of new faces. Uh, and, and really, I am surprised by the scale of the change. You know, I think we were all thinking this would be a pretty substantial shuffle, um, and it is even bigger than I expected. Uh, because cabinet consists of, I think, 38 ministers plus the prime minister. And as you said off the top, only eight are staying in their current position. So lots of pieces moving around on the chessboard. It does mean that seven veteran cabinet ministers are out, but they're bringing in eight new faces and everybody else is, is getting a new role. So the benefits of bringing in new people it means you're bringing in new perspectives and new energy. I think that's really important after nearly eight years in government. And it also helps to put the focus on what I'll call battleground ridings. These are, these are you know, places where the Liberals maybe won by slim margins, where they need people who are deeply connected to the community, uh, who are great at doing outreach and who are strong fundraisers. Yeah, so what does that do and, around the cabinet table then, Jenny? Like when you do, when you talk about bringing in new perspectives, does that mean that you're hearing things that, you know, otherwise ideas get old and people bring new ideas? Is it, is it as simple as that? Um, well, it can, it can be that, that case. You know, the, the Prime Minister used to say that, you know, they didn't want to be the voice of Ottawa and the writings that they wanted to hear from the writings back in Ottawa. 
And certainly bringing in new people can, can help to accomplish that. But a change of this scale, I think, is a chance for the government to clearly signal to Canadians ahead of an election. I don't think we're going this year or next year, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's on the horizon. A chance to say to Canadians, these are the issues we care about because we know these are the issues that you care about. And this is the team that's going to get that done. So it really is a big reset opportunity for the government. And what is the balance like when you're kind of behind the scenes on this? What goes into forming a cabinet? What are all of the things that need to be taken into consideration? Well, I think uh, one of the things, if you can remember back to 2015, when, uh, you know, it made news headlines, not just here in Canada, but internationally, the government was making a commitment to having gender balance in cabinet. Um, that is that has been maintained since 2015, and I'm I'm optimistic that it's enshrined now, and that future governments will continue to hold to that. So gender balance is one consideration. You want to make sure that you have a good mix of veterans, of people who are experienced around the cabinet table, and some new fresh faces. Regional considerations are really important as well. And I think it's also important that we move toward a cabinet that looks like Canada. And I think if you look at the seven new faces, um, there is gender balance and there's it's a really diverse group of people, including a new MP from uh, from uh, Terry Beach from Burnaby. So lots of lots of stuff goes into that process. I remember seeing a photo of the Prime Minister standing in front of a whiteboard with magnets with people's names and literally just just moving them around trying to find the right mix. Okay, what does it say though when someone is is completely taken out of cabinet, somebody like Marco Mendocino, who had a relatively high profile role? Yeah, I, I think Medicino is, is an interesting case. You know, the government had a really challenging spring, um, and a lot of the challenges came, I, I don't think necessarily from Minister Medicino, but on that file. There were just a, a, an awful lot of hot issues. Um, it, it, to me, it's not surprising. Again, this is a chance for renewal. It, it's a chance for a reset. Um, and sometimes there, there are people who you don't want to move, because the relationships are really important. And I think you see that with Minister Jolie staying at Foreign Affairs, um, with Minister Heidi staying at Indigenous Services. But sometimes you do need to shake things up. And I think that's what we're seeing today. Okay, so what should Canadians take away from this, Jen? Jenny? I know people, they hear this and they think, well, what does it really mean to me? Yeah, it, well, and interestingly, this is where I, I want to flag uh, Terry Beach's new role as Minister of Citizen Services. I just texted a friend and I'm like, citizen services, what does that mean exactly? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I expect that this will be to lead the files that are handled by Service Canada. So, you know, Dan, these are important files. These are the ones that touch the lives of Canadians in a really tangible way, often in a moment of need. So these are things like employment insurance, Canada Pension Plan, old age security, stuff like that. Um, so, you know, I think what this government, I think what the government is doing or is signaling with this shuffle is we're paying attention to the issues that we know matter to you. And this is the team that's going to get some important things done over the next couple of years. Right. So is that also an indication that Service Canada probably needs some work, needs a little reviving? Somebody needs to get on that. Uh, not, not necessarily. I think, you know, like we saw after the 2021 election, when all of a sudden we had a Minister of Housing, I think the government is just sensitive to the concerns of, of Canadians and is, is paying attention to, you know, what, what we're worrying about, what's keeping us up at night. And so making sure that the government is there and is able to deliver on the services that you need and expect and pay for, I think that makes sense. All right. Well, Jenny, thanks so much for explaining it to us this morning.
You're welcome. Take care. Appreciate that time. That's Jenny Armstrong, instructor of the political management graduate program at Carleton University. Also worked in government, former director of communications for Minister Morneau, former lead speechwriter for Prime Minister Trudeau, talking about the impact of today's cabinet shuffle, what it all means. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now for Making Sense of the Markets with Laurie Pinkowski. Laurie is a senior portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity and joins us now. Good morning, Laurie. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are those markets doing? Well, markets are fairly flat this morning, again, ahead of the Fed interest rate decision, which is happening today at 11 a.m. Markets are pricing in a 97% chance that they're going to raise rates again by 25 basis points. This will put their benchmark rate at 5.25%. Uh, that would be the 11th uh, increase since early 2022 uh, and the highest level in 22 years. And, you know, that this hike that's coming um, or supposedly coming, uh, you know, is really um, the first rate hike again after they paused in June. Uh, you know, and we thought they would allow kind of more time to really assess the situation because it takes a, a little while for all of these rate increases to really infiltrate the economy. However, it is expected that they're going to increase. Um, inflation came in in June at 3%, um, where core inflation remains high at 4.8%. So they're still not back to that 2% level that they're looking for. Um, although this is expected to be, you know, the last rate uh, last rate increase or one of the last rate increases. So we'll see what they have to say. Uh, that's almost more important for the markets. And uh, they'll be uh, talking at 1130 a.m. today. So we'll uh, be all ears for that, Simi. That's for sure. Very important stuff. Yeah, just every single time this happens now, right? We're all ears. It, it seems a bit unpredictable too, doesn't it, Laurie? Yeah, you know, I think with the Bank of Canada surprising, yeah. um, you know, after they paused, you know, I, I think that uh, markets markets really want certainty. It doesn't like uncertainty. And so when, you know, we think that there's a pause and then all of a sudden they increase again, I mean, the, the Fed did allow for more rate increases when they talked last time. They, you know, they said they probably weren't done and so on. So the market was expecting this. That's the thing. It's already priced in unless they do something, you know, drastic, I would say. Um, but markets have been moving forward. And, and and onwards and upwards since that last uh, since that last meeting, and then also um, you know we've got earnings right, and so the the market is focused on two things right now, or three I would say: um, interest rates, inflation, as well as earnings. Okay, let's talk about that earnings season then. So, what are we seeing? Yeah, you know, roughly um, 80% of uh, U.S. companies have beaten earnings estimates, although it's early in the season, only 20% or so have reported. Uh, Some of it's due to lower expectations from analysts before the season even kicked off, right? So if you set the bar low, then, you you know, you'll see more companies beat. Um, We saw Microsoft reported, um, uh, you know, they beat both on earnings and revenue estimates, but uh, their kind of forecast going forward wasn't as positive for their kind of cloud services business and the stock is trading down 4% this morning, but remember it's up 40% year to date. So in the tech sector, you know, even if earnings are a little mixed, you have to see where they've come from since January and Alphabet or Google, uh, they beat the stock is doing really well this morning up 6% uh, or 46% year to date. Uh, Meta or Facebook is going to be reporting after the close today. Then you have some of the more kind of the staples, Coca-Cola, Loblaws, um, you know, Coca-Cola top second quarter earnings and revenue 
uh, estimates, uh, but the stock is flat this morning and down about 2% year to date. Loblaws, uh, the stock is down 2% this morning, uh, but they beat both on earnings and revenue estimates. So remember, even if a company has, you know, good earnings, um, you know, the other part of this is which sector are they in, um, you know, and if you're taking a look at some of the staples, uh, they've been really lagging this year due to everyone jumping into technology stocks, travel stocks, higher growth companies, um, where some of these others have been kind of left in the dust. But that doesn't mean that we won't see a sector rotation, right? If there is fear uh, that there could be a recession coming, or the economy really starts to slow, usually these types of holdings tend to do well. So I still believe it's important to have a diversified portfolio, you know, not to go too much one way or the other and have um, exposure to both, uh, you know, growth as well as defensive type names out there. What do you mean like sector rotation? Sector rotation, uh, such as, you know, financials are doing well uh, over the past, say, few weeks, even few months, uh, ever since that, you know, mini banking uh, crisis that we had when things started to pick back up. So financials are good. So maybe we're seeing some um, technology start to uh, stall out and people are rotating into financials, for example, uh, or healthcare stocks also starting to move higher. So sector rotation would be depending on what sector uh, that company is in, maybe in favor or out of favor. And maybe it's time to rotate some of those sectors is what we do in our portfolios anyways. Ah, okay. So one of the other things we were going to talk about this morning is uh, retirement and what to do in retirement and investing. Now, do people invest in real estate in their retirement? Do they have the flexibility to do that? Yeah, it's it's more when we're talking about real estate and retirement, which I just did on uh, my Ready, Set, Retire podcast uh, that'll be out this Friday with John McComb. We were talking about real estate and retirement in the sense of, of kind of two areas. One, we get a lot of questions about downsizing, right? Uh, is this the time to do so? What's going on with the real estate market? Uh, and then number two is early gifting to adult children or even grandchildren and helping them out help, uh, to break into the Vancouver or lower mainland real estate market because it's almost impossible for young people to do so. And so, the you know, the first part of the conversation is, okay, well, what's happening in the housing market right now in the lower mainland, right? And so we've seen prices come back. Um, they've surged over 15% year to date, uh, where, of course, they were kind of lower by 15% um, previously. So the, the housing market, the real estate market was slowing and it started to pick back up. Uh, we're now seeing home prices up by 4% uh, at the same time last year, since the same time last year, I should say. So that's important. It's also important to look where interest rates are and so on in inventory. So the, the biggest complaint out there right now, you know, if someone's trying to downsize is where am I going to go? There's not much listed out there, you know, and, and I think that is a big issue for those wanting to downsize. However, Downsizing is kind of a special animal because you can't wait too long. You don't want to be forced to downsize. You want to downsize when you're, you know, you have your mobility, you're able to, you're healthy enough. Um, you know, you're able to make decisions about what, you know, you're keeping, what you're, you know, letting go of. And I think that's important when, when making that decision about downsizing and, and whether you're going to a condo apartment or assisted living, I think those are conversations that, uh, again, I'm having with a, a lot of people, 
Uh, but again, you want to have that conversation uh, with your partner or spouse as well. And and so when we're looking at uh, the housing market and that it has kind of ramped up in the last little while, you know, what what's going to happen going forward, Simi, though, right? Like, I mean, yeah. we've seen when rates go, you know, this far, this fast, that historically that really affects the real estate market, which we haven't seen as of as of yet, you know, and I'm sure you've noticed that as well. Yeah, we have noticed that for sure. Um, so what should we consider? Well, I think that when we're looking at um, the real estate market and that sales have improved, the prices have kind of recovered, that there might be kind of a good window here to be uh, downsizing if you're, you know, heading into retirement or you're already retired, you know, that this might may be your opportunity because, you know, even though the banks here in Canada have been trying to help variable rate mortgage holders with pretend and extend, as you and I have talked about before, um, you know, adding more interest onto people's payments, even, uh, you know, the Bank of Canada doesn't really love that whole situation because they're not really having the desired uh, effect of, you know, people selling because, you know, they're not able to afford their mortgage payments. And so therefore home prices are not moving lower, which is again, part of inflation. Um, and also, you know, what we're all seeing is affordability. So, you know, even retirees, if, if you were going to take out a mortgage, which some do, even if they sell their place and the question is, is, you know, uh, do you want to take a mortgage or not with rates being this high? So that's another conversation. And then, and then the early gifting part of all of this, if you're trying to help out your, um, adult children or grandchildren, uh, you know, now is it the best time to actually be doing that? Um, you know, if they buy a condo that's seven, 800,000, and let's say it falls a hundred thousand, you know, it was that the best time to be buying real estate. So remember real estate doesn't always just go up and, and you want to make sure that um, you're still looking at trying to invest at the right time. And, you know, in my opinion, I see real estate prices slowing um, over the next six to 12 months, unless they change course on interest rates. But again, we'll have to see how that looks going forward. All right, we will. Thank you so much for that, Lori. Thanks so much, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That is Lori Pinkowski. Lori is a Senior Portfolio Manager at Canaccord Genuity. And remember, you can contact her team at 604-695-LORI, or you can visit their website at pinkowski.ca.